Israel comes to that chapter, to almost the last chapter of the Bible, which is Revelation 21. Uh, we are dealing in our last couple of sessions that we had with the subject of New Jerusalem. And I, I want, I'm, I'm sorry, not our la last couple, I'm, I'm talking about the last couple that we're having here tonight and next week. And I, I want to I get a perspective on this as well as an understanding. And that's why the first line in your notes is that I think perspective is just as important as the understanding. I really want to focus on the perspective tonight before we get into the understanding even more next week. So to understand that perspective, to come at it from a perspective understanding, uh, you know, from, from that aspect, chapter 21 and verse 1. Let's take a look at the beginning. We'll be jumping through the chapter uh, throughout the night. But let's go ahead and get started with this. He says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city... New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, we have come to what I will call the end of the end. And in so doing, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, what exactly does that mean? Now, first of all, understand, again, this is perspective, but understanding here. The word new, there, in this place, and we've, we've looked at this word new before, but it does not mean what we discovered the last time with that word new. I mean, it's like our word love in the English language. In the Greek, there's what? Four different words for the word love, but we use one. Uh, but it, it does not mean new in kind that we looked at last time. Remember, we... We, we, we meant this word when it says they sang a new song. And what we pointed out there in that particular word was that was a song that was new in kind. It never existed before. That is, it had never been there before. And, and that's the idea. The word new here is not new in kind, but rather means to rejuvenate. That's what this one means. It is the same one, but it is rejuvenated. And so he says, I have a rejuvenated earth and a rejuvenated heaven. It was new. It, it was the old one, but it had been made completely over again. It was rejuvenated. It's the idea. And, and again, I'll be honest, this part here is shrouded in mystery. We know nothing about that, and anybody who thinks they do I'm afraid they usually go immediately into the realm of fantasy or sci-fi or whatever. And, and this is my point, and I hope you understand this. I was talking about this earlier with, with Maggie. The Bible is a book that is written for me today. The Bible does not tell me about unknown eons of the future because I'm not living there. And, and I say that because it just hints. He nudges me, and, and, and he says, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, that is also spoken of in a book that is not basically apocalyptic, I guess is the word I would use. But it, it, by that I mean it's, it's not this book that I'm referring to is not in signs and symbols. And Peter wrote about that in a very straightforward language. And you will find it in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 3. He begins to speak there, in the beginning of there, about the flood of Noah. And that in itself you know, is an incredible subject. Uh, we did a study on Genesis years ago. And we covered that part. However, he is stating that God destroyed the earth with water. And when Noah stepped out of the ark, he was the only family on earth. Uh, there were eight people, if you remember. There was no one else on earth. All the animals had died. 
except for the animals that were on the ark. Now, Noah put his foot down upon a rejuvenated earth. It was the earth that was the same earth that he had left, yet it was a totally new earth. It was so totally new that he would not have recognized it as the earth that he left behind. So he stepped out on on the earth, uh, totally new, rejuvenated, and unlike any earth that he had ever been on before. So Peter parallels that in verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burnt up. Since all these things to be destroyed in this day, what manner of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the day and the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay. Now, quite frankly, I do not know what that new heaven and that new earth is what it's like, or, or, or really anything about it. I am sure, <laughs> in all honesty, that we'll be given instructions the moment it arrives. But until then, I'm not going to enter into a Disney world of fantasy trying to say what the Bible doesn't say. That's my point. And all I know is, is it, it says, wherein dwells righteousness. We know Satan has been given over to torment. The great harlot, Babylon, has collapsed, crashed, and has been destroyed. Now we enter upon the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they are singing praises of God. He who brought about this great judgment. And, and, and they enter into a new heaven and a new earth. This, this, this life is, is not all there is, friends, that we have here. Time had a beginning, and I can tell you time is going to have an end. You do realize that time is one of the factors. God doesn't have time. He doesn't live according to time. He doesn't say to us, oh, look, it's 10 after 7 on a Wednesday night on January the 18th. That doesn't exist for him. Eternity doesn't operate in time. So there, you know, it's, it's pretty much a result of the fall of man, if you want to know the truth. So after that, what we move into is an unknown future, it, it, eternal eons, if you will, when God's further purposes down the road here will be unfolded. That, that is what this is saying that we read. It tells us that Satan will not be able to get there. Why? Wherein dwells righteousness. That's the reason. When Noah stepped onto the earth, he brought with him all the problems of the old earth. Hello? I mean, it's very significant, like, for example, when you study Genesis, that when the earth was first formed, first began, man was the one who fouled it up. And, and in so doing, the very first thing he did in fouling it up was to stand in the Garden of Eden and be aware of his nakedness. And in the new earth, Noah stepped onto it and was and and did and, and the very first thing that he did, according to what we're told, is that he got stone drunk and then he stripped off all his clothes and stood there and stood there naked. It seems very significant in the beginning that you know man became ashamed of his nakedness. Then God gave them a new earth, and Noah stepped into it, but it was only a matter of years before he was shamed in his nakedness. And, you know, we don't need to get into all that, that teaching there, but says God, there is a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells what? Righteousness. If you know anything about the scriptures, you will know that the saints are clothed in what? God's righteousness, clothed. And so we have that little insight into whatever the future holds. 
But our main subject as we come to this is the new Jerusalem. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. You'll notice that in verse 10 it says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was very costly, etc., etc. There is something I especially really want you to notice. In the light of those two scriptures, take a look at verse 9. It says, one of the angels said, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, I want you to be able to hold these last scriptures, three scriptures together. And, and maybe this last one, that we, what I'm saying here is the most important. We have just met the wife of the Lamb, the bride, if you will, back in chapter 19. And it's very obvious that that wife, the bride of the Lamb, is who? The church. Almost any book you will pick up these days that mention end times or the book of Revelation in particular, they will speak of the new Jerusalem as a real city. And, and I have my, my, my friends who are completely convinced that the new Jerusalem is a city that is 15,000 miles square and cubed and all the rest of it, and somehow it, it, it will fall down from heaven. <laughs> I don't know, I just, you know. I still believe that, honestly, as I look at this, and I hope you will too, that this is one of the easiest parts of the book of Revelation to understand in this part. The angel said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven. It's a very simple understanding. I mean, of all the symbols in the book of Revelation, this to me is the easiest because this one says, I'm going to show you the wife of the Lamb, the bride, the church. And then he shows us a city. That city then in some way represents the wife of the Lamb, the bride, which is the church. I hope you see the parallel here because... We saw one parallel last time we had a, a, a one session. The parable was that on the one hand, you had the harlot representing the world. And on the other hand, you had the bride representing the church. Two women. Also, it states in Revelation 17 that the harlot was a city. Remember, written on her forehead, it said what? Babylon. She was the city. And then we went into chapter 18 and looked at that city. First of all, we saw the woman, the harlot, and it told us, again, she was the city. Then we looked at the same thing under the symbol of the city. Last time we looked at the bride of the lamb under the symbolism of a, a bride, a, a beautiful woman, now it says she is also a city. And now you have a harlot, bride, Babylon, and New Jerusalem. It, it, it's, they're all a parallel. And so we're looking at the church, and he, immediately this should give us perspective. That's why I, I, I pushed this in the very beginning. So when does this take place? Well, we've already stated right at the beginning that John makes it plain that there is a new heaven and a new earth. He also states there is no more sea. And all through the book, we've seen this, that sea has been the restless, turbulent nations. Do you recall that part? Uh, I mean, do you remember the beast came out of the sea, out from the nations, in other words? Now he says there are no more turbulent nations. Something's happened here. There's a new kind of rejuvenated heaven and earth. So very definitely he is talking of endless futures. On the other hand, 
whatever the church is in endless futures, the church is today in what I will call an embryo, okay? It, it, it is, it's in the process of development. Uh, it, it, it's a thing that's in its rudimentary form. That's what an embryo is, is all about. In fact, the Bible teaches me very plainly, I'll put, that we have already come to the new Jerusalem. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, anybody remember that one? Verse 22, you have these words, but you have come. That's a past tense phrase. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and myriads of angels. So the church today is called the heavenly Jerusalem. You remember in the book of Galatians, he speaks, Paul speaks of the Jerusalem, two of them, one which is below and the Jerusalem which is above. He speaks of the Jerusalem which is below, and that is the whole legalistic system of dead religion. He gets, he gets into it about the bondage and everything else, and he says that they are cast out in Galatians chapter 4. You can mark this down and read it later, verses 25 and 26. But, but he says that the Jerusalem which is above, that's the promised seed. And, and, and which is the one who, who is free, is, is living in the grace of God. So all through the New Testament, you have this idea that if we come to the church, we have already come to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above. Again, we're getting perspective here. So what we are looking at there is not only a church, which is the ideal church of endless futures, but we are looking at the church as it is today, at least in embryo form. So, honestly, we will never really see this unless the Holy Spirit shows us. We, we can go through all these studies together, to be honest with you, and, 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 and maybe, you know, these, these last couple hours that we spend together will be more important than all of them. But we look at the harlot and we look at Babylon and we look at the bride and, and, and we look at the new Jerusalem. But unless the Spirit shows you that, you're never really going to see it. That's the problem. I think it's significant that of all the chapters in Revelations, it, it, it is these two where it specifically states that the Spirit had activity. Take a look at chapter 17, verse 3. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Notice that he says, I was carried away. How? In the Spirit. And only when he was in the Spirit did he see the true nature of that woman. Then in this statement of the New Jerusalem, it gives the very same idea. In verse 10, which we've already read, it says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. If you don't see these things by the Holy Spirit showing you, then the church is just a bunch of people and they're all mixed up together. But in the spirit, you can discern the true church. You are taken to a great high mountain and, and you see things the way they really are. And when you look at the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see the world as it is. And, 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 and I say that because uh, you see the world as it really is in, from, a, from a context of the desert, in the wilderness. And, and you know that this is just what the world really is when you look at it. You can see all the antics and all the politics and all the corruption. You can see the, the, the criminal activities, the dementedness, all the problems, the, the sexual immoralness. You can see the starvation. You can see the desecration. You can see all the storms. But you're seeing beyond that into what it really is. And, and I, quite honestly, I, I find myself amazed by the number of people that cannot be discerned between the two. We, 
We need to be taken to a high mountain by the Holy Spirit to see the church, the real church, the bride, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy City, the, the new Jerusalem. And then we need to see by the same Holy Spirit all those who have not been born again who are in that wilderness along with that harlot sitting on the beast. But only the Spirit can show us. Apart from that, we get all mixed up and oh, quite honestly, we, we don't even know where we are. We are going to look at the new Jerusalem not only as a future reality, but also as present among us now in embryo, okay? So I think you'll realize this. Look, look here in, in chapter 21 here, verse 4. It says, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. I will give to the one who thirsts of the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. Now, I know there's a finality about those verses, but hasn't that happened already is my point? Quite frankly, it, it has. Didn't Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life? He who believes in me shall what? Never die is what he says. We have already entered into that eternal life. I can honestly say death has passed away from me. Th there will be a day when you will read in the newspaper, if you happen to be around, <laughs> and I haven't read about you first, but that Pastor Beck is dead. But I'm telling you, please don't believe that. You will know that I am more alive than I have ever been. There is no such thing as death for Christians. Always when the, spi when the spider, when the Bible speaks of death of a Christian, it says they what? Fall on sleep. It, it, it's a beautiful thing. I know this sounds strange, but, but I often think that we have got to learn how to die. There's a new one for you. You're all looking at me like a deer in the headlights. What have I often said? We're not ready to live until we're ready to die. In the New Testament, what, what does Paul describe it as? It, it, it was glory to depart and be with Christ, which is far better is what he said. He says, there is no more death in, the, in this new Jerusalem. So we're going to ask the ushers to pass out the Coca-Cola wipes. No, I'm just kidding. But the fact is, this is true. We're talking embryo, in embryo. I understand that. I still look forward to the resurrection of my body, and, and there will be no more death. It says, oh, death, where is your sting? It, it is over, but even now, it, it's, it's here. I, I've got it. It's, it's an embryo form. It is no longer there. We have been delivered from that. The tears of Christians sparkle with triumph. And, 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 and or as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 puts it, we sorrow not as others which have no hope. We sorrow. Nobody says we don't sorrow. We are human, but we don't sorrow as other, others do. There is triumph in our tears. And although this has not happened in totality, it has happened. I know what it is talking about. I, I have it in embryo. And of course it says the first things have passed away. I hear that all the way through the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, the old things have what? Passed away. It says, behold, look, everything has become new. He says, for we are new creations in Christ. So I cannot really delegate this to the future. This is now in, in, in an embryo. I have got this. I, I know what it's talking about. Haven't you been... Uh, well, I, like John puts it, you've been the one who has come and has drunk of the water of life without cost. 
Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and do what? Drink. So for all 2,000 years to date, during that time period, this has already taken place in embryo. Or as Ephesians 1, 11 says, we have already received here and now the earnest of our inheritance. The earnest of our inheritance. Earnest money is what? It's a down payment. If I lay a down payment on a house, I'm putting so much money down, right? That means there is a lot more like this to come. Earnest is a little bit of a lot more. That's the way I see it. And, and I, I say that because we have received the earnest of our inheritance. <laughs> that is, whatever heaven is, and we don't know, whatever new earth and new heaven means, you, you don't really know. But whatever it is, it is, it is just what we, have, we already have in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit multiplied and multiplied and multiplied to infinity. So this is how we are looking at the New Jerusalem. Now, it tells me that the New Jerusalem has nothing wrong with it. It's an incredibly beautiful city. But when I look around at the church, I say, Lord, you, you made a mistake somewhere here. What, what, what you are looking at in this New Jerusalem is the architect's understanding. The whole building exists in the mind of the architect. He, he sees it complete. No architect begins to draw plans hoping that it's going to you know, lead somewhere. He's already seen it. It is a complete, finished house in his mind. So the plans are drawn, and, and then you have all the builders who know how to read plans they go and they start building. You see these holes in the ground. You see bulldozers over there. You got a post sticking up here and a chunk of concrete that's over there. And you say, that's a mess. And the architect stands on the building site, and all he can see is the finished article. If you go and look at that building in the making, somewhere on that site you will see the architect's vision in blueprints, or I can put it this way, every architect likes to put together a model of what it's going to look, or a picture, like a, a, what we call a rendering of what the architect knows this is going to end up like. So first of all, we are going to go through uh, designating all things it says about this place. So let me get into this. First of all, the church is seen here as a city. I don't think I need to prove that. Chapter 21, verse 2 says what? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, a city. Why should the church be called a city? It says all through the scripture that the, that the church is, is the coming together of people, a body. It's a fellowship. A city kind of puts that idea together. City is a place of permanent residence. It's a place where people fellowship and, and live in community. So all that we read in the Bible concerning church has to do with other people. Now, the very word church means office. In case you've ever wondered, it's a word that is used to describe a company of people who think the same way. And they come out from that thinking. It, it, it's a separated company, if I can put it that way. And they, they stay together in order to make decisions and as a result to implement them. The idea of a body, even as all my organs in my body are united together, so is the body of Christ. The coming together, the fellowship, the sharing and the communion. You have come to rest in the city. There's no motels in the New Jerusalem. You come to rest there. I think it is important that we understand the echoes 
from end to end of the Bible. Do you remember the very first people of God and when God first laid his hands upon those people and he said, you are my people? Do you remember where they lived? In tents. The people of God end up living in a city. That's the idea. It's a, it's a city of tents. In the Old Testament, they were always searching, seeking. What's next? You know, what's next? They were waiting. They were waiting. Wait, but, but in Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus and in his ascension, we have come to rest. I, I think this is brought out very powerfully in Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about Abraham. In verse 9 there, he says, By faith, that is, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promises, for he was looking for a city with buildings whose architect and builder is God. The promised land was not what we call Israel today. Abraham recognized that straight away. He said, I, I, I'm not going to build a house in this land, even though God has given it to me. He says, we are only in this land until we come to the city whose builder and maker is God. The city is the church. The piece of land in the Mediterranean is important only until Jesus is born. And when Jesus was born, he said, I will build my church. And the promised land is the church. I said they lived in tents there. You're not going to settle there. That's the idea. Nobody has got the idea that that strip of, of, of land is what God had in mind forever. It said, we'll just put tents there. A even Abraham wouldn't bother to put a house on that old bit of sand. He said, we'll just live here, but I am really waiting for the real thing that God has promised that is a city whose builder and maker is God. And when, when, the, when the church came, then we put down roots. We, we come to rest, for the church will be there as long as God is. I hope you get the picture here. The second thing he said about this city is that he said, it is the holy city. Oh, I love that word. The holy city, New Jerusalem. Do you remember what it said about Babylon? Let's go there first. It said Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. So on the one hand is the harlot, the bride, Babylon, and the Jew, New Jerusalem. So, so Babylon is great. New Jerusalem is holy. That's the difference. Babylon great, Jerusalem holy. What is greatness? If, if I am to say, if I was to say such and such, or this person here, you know, it's great, I'm speaking about that person. If, if, if I was to point to, you know, I'm trying to think here. If I was to point to Glenda, she's closest right at the moment. If I was to point to Glenda and say, you're a great person, I am saying something about who? You. You in yourself are great and mighty. But do you remember the first Babylonian? His name was Nimrod. It says he was what? Mighty. It says something about him. See, the symbolism there is that's the world. The world will always say something about itself. The world is the long, or I should say the time long, long time ego trip. Great, mighty, yes, you shall be as God. All the flaunting of the world, all that it has to seek to exalt itself and say, I am. So what does holy mean? Holy means set apart. It means for another. It means belonging to another. In its first instance, understand this, holy does not mean free from sin. Okay, I got your attention there? Holy does not mean 
Jerusalem now rapidly gets there, yes. But in its essence, it, it doesn't mean that. If, if I were to take my Bible and, and give it to Paul, for example, then I would say this Bible is for him. That means it's holy to him. It belongs to him. All of God's creation was created to be holy to God. That is set apart for God's pleasure. That is belonging to God. And that is for God. God is holy. That means God belongs to himself. He belongs to no one else. God is holy, and that means he is set apart to himself. God is holy. That means he is set apart to his own exclusive delight. All creation delights in God. God delights in himself, for there is no higher to delight in. So I hope you're getting this, but get it this way. When I say the Babylon, the Babylon is great, I am saying something about Babylon itself. It has exalted itself to be great. When I say that New Jerusalem is holy, I am not saying anything about, the new, about New Jerusalem. I'm saying it belongs to someone else. You see the difference there? So this New Jerusalem, the church, is a company of people who are holy. They are the set-apart ones. They belong exclusively to God. They do not belong to themselves. They are for God's pleasure. They belong to him. Do, do you remember the central term of the new covenant that we've taught on so long? God says what? He says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. The new Jerusalem is a company of people who are the exclusive possession of God. The new Jerusalem originates with God. In chapter 21, verse 2, again, it says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So not only is the city for God, they originate with God. They come down out of heaven. Most cities that I know rise up from the earth. You build a foundation of the earth, and then you build a city on top of that foundation, and so they rise up out of the earth. This is a city like you have never seen before. It comes down out from heaven. This, that is, it has its origination with God. And, and, and this fits perfectly, really, with everything else the Bible has said about the kingdom of God, the, the church. Do you remember back in Daniel, that big old statue that Nebuchadnezzar made? And, and, and you know, you, you, you've got the head of gold and the breast of silver, and you move all the way down to the legs of iron, which we know is the Roman Empire, and, and, and then you, uh, do, uh, the, it says the next kingdom that is to come upon the earth will not follow the others. It will come from heaven. It says, I saw a stone cut without human hands. That little stone that had a miraculous beginning came hurtling towards this great colossus, smashed it into pieces, and became a great mountain then that did what? It filled the earth. So it says there was Babylon, the head of gold. They thought they were fantastic. They thought they were wonderful. But they ended. And after them, there came the Medes and the Persians, right? And although they felt they were great, they had to admit that they merely took over from Babylon. That head of gold became then the breast of silver. And after them comes the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great, and they thought they were the greatest thing that ever was for sure. But maybe, and well, you know, maybe they were. I don't know. But they took over from the head of gold and the chest of silver. 
each one takes over from the other because it is a continuum. You remember the beast we found in this book? Really and truly, it is only one beast. There's not many. I mean, he shows himself in different ways throughout history. The same beast was behind Greece, the, the beast that was behind Babylon, and the beast, for example, that was behind Nazi Germany. And in my opinion, the beast that's behind the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a beast. It's a beast. But now he says, here comes that one that is a little stone that does not just follow on, on, on and takes over from all the others. No, no, no. This one comes from the outside, cut without hands. Or as it puts it here, this city came down from heaven. All the other cities came up out of the earth. This is totally different. This is all back to front. This one comes out of heaven. Or as Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. So you can sit easy, Pontius Pilate. I am not about to bring about a battle to dethrone you, so to speak. My kingdom is not of this world, or my servants would have fought. My city does not rise out of the earth. My city comes from heaven. The church originates with God. The church is not a human institution. The church is a heavenly thing on earth. I suppose because I, and I keep to myself a lot of times on this, but because of an understanding I see, I, I get very uptight when I hear a lot of people call a lot of human institutions churches, and they scare me half to death, because they're not. The church is a heavenly institution. It comes down from heaven. Jesus said, I will build my church. It does not originate with men. It originates with God. I, he said, will build my church. He calls that church that comes from heaven a city. Jesus said, in my Father's house are what? Yeah, or many dwelling places is what its actual interpretation is. That is the church. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I use it because I, I know most people's understanding of it is, is different than this. But, but to be honest with you, we have taken that chapter and, and have really taken it out of context in many ways. And, and, and to be honest, you know, I, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And the impression I always got in my spiritual upbringing, if I can say it that way, was that Jesus was up there desperately banging houses together and building and preparing a place for me. And then one day, you know, I can sing with the others, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, right? Then one day, I love the way the Holy Spirit teaches you things. Now I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go? He went to the cross. And on the cross, he prepared a place for you. What was that place? It was a place of many dwelling places. So it fits perfectly. A city, many dwelling places. It comes down from God. God made all the dwelling places. The dwelling place is the very heart. It is union with him. It is walking with him. We live in God. You are a part of the city. You live there, and you moved there when you were born again, and your new birth came from God. Or as John 3 says, you are born from above, born of the Spirit. There is nothing human about the church. And by the way, go ahead and, and, and take a look at John there before and after and what it's all saying, what Peter's talking about before Jesus says, in my house there are many. Take a look at it. Take, and, and because I'll say it again, there's, there's, there's there, mm, nothing human about the church. I Honestly, and I think you know what I'm saying here is when you take the miraculous out of the church, you don't have a church. 
you can take the miraculous out of almost any religion on the earth and you still have that religion. <laughs> but take the miraculous out of the church and, 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 and you have lost the church altogether. A, a bad Buddhist <laughs> isn't bad because he only started off with philosophy anyways, but you can take away the miraculous from the church and you have the biggest mess you have ever seen because the church, I'll say it again, is from above. And if it is not from above, it's not anywhere. The church came from heaven. It started before time began with those plans that God had laid. It was brought about by the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It is now being built actively by the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are working in glorious, undivided union to bring about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. That's the whole end of everything. Born from above, coming down out of heaven, a bride adorned for her husband, glorious. In fact, in verse 11 of this chapter, it tells us how glorious. It says, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like very, a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Where did we meet jasper before in, in, this, in this book? Back in chapter 4. And that jasper we saw was the glory of the unborn beginning God who is light. That was at the beginning of this book. Now, at the end of the book, we see here's a city which we have defined as the church and that that light with the same jasper and it's saying having the glory of God. I get excited at that. Perhaps the two most amazing statements in the New Testament if you put them together, are, are number one, when Jesus said this. He said, I am the light of the world, right? And then he turns to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, you are the light of the world. Light. He said, I am the light of the world. He's, he is the glory of God among us, the jasper stone in the flesh, and he turns right around and says to his church, you are the light of the world. That is the miracle of the true church. When you come to God, who is light, to participate in that light, you become light. That's an incredible thing. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are what? Evil. Or as Paul called us on many occasions, he called us the children of what? Light. You are of, of light. Man, it felt originally, I mean, we're, we're basically wanting to say children of the night kind of thing. And, and, and we love it. Yet when we come into contact with God, who is light, not only is our past wiped away, but we become a partaker of the light. To participate in God, who is light, you participate in that light, you become light. I think you follow what I'm saying. The glory of God shines through us. That is the message of the New Testament that we, we have so long missed. It's not merely forgiveness. I understand that part. But, but, but the, the message of the New Testament is, 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 is not merely you've been forgiven. The message of the New Testament is union. We come into union with God. This is a city that is in union with the eternal light of God. That's who you are. We are heaps of dust and mud, but in us, is the glory of God. Put us all together, and you have the church. And it's radiant 
with jasper stones, which is the glory of God. Whereas 2 Corinthians puts it, we, you know this verse, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, right? You're the vessel. The glory of God is the treasure. And that shines through us in what we call the fruit of the Spirit with nine characteristics. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit that has the nine characteristics. Only God, friend, can be satisfied with God. Or rather, I should turn that around. God can only be satisfied with God. A church that doesn't radiate God, God would not be satisfied with. A few minutes ago when I said that God delighted in God, some of you are looking at me. But when man turns to himself egotistically, he's wrong. That, in fact, is the heart of sin, right? It's called pride. God cannot look to any higher, for he is the infinitely highest. There is no more perfect that God can look to. There is no more beautiful that God can look to. God is the infinite glory. And so every creature that is created must delight in God. But God must delight in himself, for there is no higher. That's the whole point. It was a higher order. If, it's, if, if it was higher than God, then he ceased to be God because the higher would be God. Amen? Cough, cough, cough. Amen. God can only delight in his own glory. That's the point. Anything less than that would mean that God delighted in less than perfect, and God wouldn't be God. If God is going to delight in the church, the church must be filled with his light, his life, his love, and his glory. You remember we talked about Adam and Eve. Remember that? Ish and Esha. The bride must be of the very same stuff. That's, that's the whole point. Adam can look around, he can see all the animals, and, and there's just, you know, they're not the same. He has no companion. So the bride must be of the very same stuff, the very same nature as the groom. There has got to be fellowship. And the ish, the male, must look and say, Isha, the female. She is the same as me, but she's different. The bride, that's the idea. She She's not me, but she's the same as me. And so the city, it's the same story. When God looks at the city, he sees his own glory. Therefore, it is a fit habitation for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It is quite a thought that, to me anyways, that the church is among men. The revelation, in other words, of God on earth. And I say that because <laughs> there is no other revelation. Jesus went away. It's almost unbelievable. I mean, it's finished. The resurrection, the ascension, it's done. Salvation has come. And so he takes a handful of, of fishermen and he says, now you go into all the world and proclaim it. And I, I look at that and I say, you, you know they're going to mess up. They're going to fail. So, you know, what's, what's plan B? And he says, there is no plan B. Everything is the church. The church is the grand end of God. That's the grand aim of all ages. This, that you and I have the relationship together with God, that is what it is all about. I think that when we see that, then we really kind of get history in perspective a lot better. It tells me in chapter 21 here, in verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls, and the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod 
1,500 miles. Its length, width, and height are equal. What does that mean? 1,500 miles in each direction. It's a perfect cube. Now, I, I think you'll know where I'm going with this, obviously. 1,500 miles is our translation. What it really says is 12,000 furlongs. Now, now you're back to it. If you just heard that number, you should be right back. What's the number? 12. We have met 12 over and over and over again. What is, what is 12,000? Well, 12 is what? 3 times 4. Throw some tens in there and, and you've got it. That is what we have been doing all the way through this study. 3, 4, 10, all the time. 3, if you remember, is the operation of the Trinity. 4 is universal. It's the, the whole world. It's all nations. And 10 is the number of completion, final completion to which can be added no more. That's the idea behind this. Three is the operation of twinity. 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 Give me back that water. Eh, twinity. Yeah, okay. Four is universal. In other words, it talks about the whole world, the four corners of the world, the all nations, the four winds and Ten is the number of completion. You go one up through ten, and that's where you stop, and you start all over again with the next set of tens. It, it, no more can be added to it. So, so what is the new Jerusalem, this cube of threes and fours and twelves? I mean, here we have it. It is the church. It tells us that in that number, the church, God's activity in all the corners of this universe, bring to pass His perfect will. But why a cube, Lord? Because it looks like a Rubik's cube. You know, it's all messed up. Nobody can put it back. We, we, we have come across 3, 4, and 10 before. This really, what you're getting down to, is just another way of saying 144,000, actually. But, but again, why, why the cube? Well, let me read it to you. Are you ready? You're going to love this part. There is only one other place in the Bible where you have such a cube. And I believe it is the key to what we're talking about here. In the first book of Kings, chapter 6, and verse 20, and the inner sanctuary, what's the inner sanctuary, by the way? The Holy of Holies. Was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, 20 cubits in height, and overlaid with gold. So the only other cube mentioned in the Bible was the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. Now, I find that significant. The New Jerusalem, the church, is presented to us as a perfect cube, and the only other cube that is mentioned in the Bible is the Holy of Holies. I mean, what he is stating is that the church is the holy of holies among men. In fact, in, in, in verse 3 here in chapter 21, it tells us that very plainly. It says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, The tabernacle of God is with men. Wow. And he shall dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. He said the church... This, this new Jerusalem, that city, is the ultimate holy of holies. Do you understand what I mean by that? Let me, let me, let me just give you a quick backup on this. In the Garden of Eden, there was the glory of God, right? The presence, the glory of God. Man lived in the glory of God. And he walked in the glory of God in that garden. Then when he sinned, what happens? He gets thrown out of that. Notice that. The Garden of Eden didn't fall. Have you ever thought about that, really? The whole earth fell, but the Garden of Eden didn't. Man had to be thrown out of that. That's very significant. Man had to be thrown out. I mean, the Garden of Eden was a place. It was a geographical location. It was there, in there, 
was the glory of God. Man lived in there, and when he fell, he was thrown out. The garden didn't fall. It was a place of glory. Do you, do, do you remember when man turned around and, and looked back at the garden? He saw what? Two cherubim and a flame, and inside that glory, I mean, the two swords were flaming, you know, but inside that, that glory was something called the tree of life. And it says that the cherubim were to keep the way to the tree of life. The word guard there means keep. The idea was not to hold men out. The cherubim were going to guarantee that God's presence would come to pass. One day, a man is going to go back, man is going to go back in there. They're going to guard that way. Man's going to go back in that way. Then he gave them the tabernacle. And right there in the center of it was the glory of God. And you have also the veil. Do you remember what was on the veil? Cherubim. In the garden, cherubim. They were guarding the way and telling men, one day you will be able to come back into the glory. How about David? He took the Ark of the Covenant and put it where? On Mount Zion in a tent. And there was the glory of God. And man rejoicing inside that glory. There were two cherubim on the ark guarding the way. That's why the two cherubim were put there on either side of the ark. What David did in that glory, in the raising of hands and, and, and the clapping and the dancing and all the singing, the cherubim, I mean, un understand, it was a promise that one day all men would come in. The cherubim are guarding the way. The holy of holies was on Mount Zion. And then Solomon built his temple. And he made that a perfect that holy of holies. And the glory of God filled that perfect cube. It was a promise. One day, man will come in here. Do you remember when Jesus died? That veil on which the cherubim were was ripped in two from the top to the bottom, and the way into the holiest was made over. Cherubim's job was over. God had finished his work. The way into the holiness now is wide open. Man can go back into the Garden of Eden. They can now go back onto Mount Zion. They can walk into the Holy of Holies. But more, says the Scripture, you actually become a part of the Holy of Holies. I don't have to quote any Scripture for that. Do you not know that you are the... Anyway, the Holy of Holies is no longer a geographical location. It is, in fact, a company of people in whom the glory of God dwells. The new Jerusalem. It's the cube. That city is the ultimate Holy of Holies. Can somebody say amen? Hello. Hello, church. You are the temple what does that word temple translate as? The actual translation? Anybody ever look that up? It's not that you are the church or the... No, you are the holy of holies of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the presence of God, dwells in the holy of holies, which is you. You, the church... The perspective is as important or more so than the understanding. Would you stand with me? Man, good thing we didn't have that song, huh? Yeah, the church don't rise as quickly as it used to. Up from the grave they arose. I'm just thinking. But what I'm, what I'm, I hope you grab what I'm trying to give you in perspective and to bring that about. 
you're the church. You're the new Jerusalem. Go back over Hebrews 12, man. Read it again and again and again. You come to that holy mountain. I, I mean, You are the church, the church, not some human institution. You are born from above. You are here on this earth manifesting his glory. You're just not hoping you make it further to the end so you can get somewhere. No, it's more than forgiveness. That's the whole point. Don't let the enemy deceive you and the living beneath where you are. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's not rejuvenated there. That's new in kind. You've not been seen before. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become. Father, thank you for your word tonight and speaking to our hearts, touching our understanding with your teaching us, Holy Spirit. Opening our eyes to understand who we are in you and who you are in us union that we have is beyond any understanding we could ever have. But we get it in everything. We understand that it is something that is still lingering. Lead us, guide us, direct us. I pray, remind us of your words. And I pray that you will bless them keep them, that you will continue to prosper, protect, increase, increase them. Lord, honor them, love on them, and guide them in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen and amen.